This time on Refried Reviews, the story of a man who cannot stop tripping on his own dick. <laughs> Today we're going to continue our Cohen doubleheader. We did a serious man last time. For anyone interested, they can rewind one episode and hear uh, my special guest host, Sean Farina, and I chat about that. Hey. Uh, so today we are moving on to their other major existential angst movie, <laughs> uh, Inside Lewin Davis. Was this 2013? Twenty. It was like the end of 2013, yeah. Oh, cool. Okay, um, so you sort of brought this to the table where I brought a serious man and we thought this would be a good idea to kind of sandwich them up. Yeah. So I guess we can jump right in with the uh, history of this movie. Did you just sort of first see it in theaters? or? I did, yeah. It was the next Coen Brothers movie up and, you know, the uh, the trailers were great and, you know, it was about the folk music scene in the 60s, which I'm not a huge expert on, but I, you know, as a general music fan of a you know, passing affection for. And yeah, went and saw it in the theater and, you know, every Coen Brothers movie, I think more than any other filmmaker that, you know, I'm aware of or at least care as much about uh, as I do them, uh, you really, you, you owe it at least two watches before you can really start to make any kind of sense of, if not the movie, then at least how you feel about it. Yeah. Um, and... This one has become my favorite Cohen film, I think I can pretty confidently say. Wow. And it's the one that I have had the least profound, uh, you know, new thoughts or feelings about with successive viewings. Oh, so it captured your imagination immediately. It did, yeah. Huh. Um, and of course it immediately made me think about Like a Serious Man in that it is their... Um, you know, Coen Brothers movies are, they're generally about a scheme gone wrong. <laughs> and, I mean, you could... I hadn't thought about it that way, but I could see it. <laughs> yeah, like, just about all of them. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess you could kind of, like, make an argument for that, that being the case in, you know, these two films. If it's, you know, Lewin trying to make his career work and... Uh, uh, what the hell is the guy in the serious man's name? Oh, God. I should know this. Uh, Larry. <laughs> yes, Larry. <laughs> there's Lewin trying to make his career work, and there's Larry trying to just figure out what the fuck is going on. Um, and, uh, you know, something about, you know, as, you know, a someone struggling in a creative pursuit, I guess Lewin spoke to me very immediately in a way that, you know, I had to, you know, Serious Man is certainly about meditation on life and on what that movie is about and what it's about for me and for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, yeah, so it was about a middle-aged guy, and we were in our twenties. Yeah, like, <laughs> let's let's be honest. Fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's you know two guys who are you know kind of trapped in their own lives in you know very similar ways and very different ways. You had a very interesting read on. Uh, kind of you know, comparing the two after we watched it. Yeah, we, we rewatched this movie yesterday. It was my second time. And before seeing it a second time, I really wouldn't have felt prepared to talk about like the parallels between characters or anything. Lewin Davis didn't immediately jump out at me. I saw it in the theaters once. And I'll, I'll get into a little bit of 
sort of the the issues that I had with it on my first watch. But what what we ended up talking about yesterday was how both characters of um, Larry and Lewin both seem sort of driven crazy by just existential angst of wondering what it's all for and like I'm dedicating all this time to this but how do I know if that's right and how do I know if anything else is right of all these people claiming they have the answer but it occurred to me that Larry seems to be very much stuck in well I don't want to say stuck in but he's in a position where his life is quote figured out sort of the the standard nuclear family idea of he's married with kids, they own a house, uh, he has a job that seems to be going okay before the present. And uh, he's still completely frustrated by his confusion and lack of overall answers. And Lewin, to me, uh, really sort of... He encapsulated the opposite where he's someone who has no answers and doesn't necessarily identify with any of the the templates that he's supposed to fit into, where even at a, a time of counterculture, he sees people as sort of selling out in different stratus, uh, in, in different layers of the, of the cultures that he's bouncing between. So Lewin is kind of a, you know, how do I get there to this kind of ideal that Larry has reached? And Larry's kind of asking, well, what do I do now? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Sort of it's it's outside in and inside out, but both sort of seeking the same ultimate answers. Right. And I guess both just sort of suffering the same kind of confusion. Yeah. So uh, I guess just going back a little bit to when I first saw this, uh, oddly enough, it was on the, the Kevin Smith Hulu show Spoilers. I ended up going to a taping of that, so I was bussed over to the Arclight Hollywood where I saw a screening of it and then was bussed back to a little recording studio or a uh, what is it? a soundstage where uh, I and 30 audience members were asked to give our, you know, our concise description of the film into the camera. And so it was it was kind of a strange experience where it was distracting to a degree where I would have liked to just lay back and watch the latest Coen Brothers movie, like something from some people I really like. But I was also sort of what can I say that might be interesting after this and, you know, wondering if I wore the right thing, like what it would look like <laughs> compared to everyone else on camera. Yeah. So, yeah, there I had only seen it once before we rewatched it yesterday. And while there was certainly some weird baggage, I think it's be I think some of the the reason it didn't instantly connect with me is because I feel very underinformed about the era compared to how specific the movie seems to be whether it's the different kinds of music or the different people he meets up uh throughout it like i just got sort of a sense that it was alluding to larger things that i didn't understand whereas i don't know if that's even ultimately true but that that made me feel a little bit like i i was sort of just scraping the surface and could just look at that it was pretty and the music sounded good <laughs> yeah my um and I hadn't thought as much about it on that level as you did. I think partly because there were a lot of things that I did recognize. Uh, not to turn this into a you know record catalog measuring contest. <laughs> no, please. But um, I and I feel like you know you're not you know missing as much as you might worry. Um, be, 
because of, you know, not necessarily having that knowledge. Because there are a lot of people there who are, you know, there's a lot of, like, iconic, uh, like, references and imagery in there. Uh, like, many of those people are, pretty much everybody who's there, if they aren't based directly on, don't or don't seem to be directly based on somebody from that era, are, you know, at least kind of a stand-in for a subculture. You know, I don't think Johnny Five is supposed to be Jack Kerouac, but, like, <laughs> obviously he's, you know, the, you know, the beat generation there. When, uh, you know, what's his name? Uh, Stark Sands, um, the soldier. Um, oh, uh, fuck, I know you're talking about. Troy Nelson, right. Yeah. You know, when Troy Nelson gets up on stage with, uh, with Jim and Gene, it's very, it looks, you know, it, you're meant to recall uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, the uh, the song that they sang was a Peter, Paul, and Mary song. Um, that was one of the ones that I actually did remember, because my folks used to play Peter, Paul, and Mary for me when I was a kid. Oh, nice. Um, which is why the, uh, the Puff the Magic Dragon discussion in Meet the Parents just rocked me to my core. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, but I, it's less about, you know, I feel like I can state fairly confidently, it's less about, you know, needing to identify with like those people, like, uh, like what they're referencing specifically, but just kind of seeing that there are all these people who are around Lewin who are in their niche and are kind of like doing fine in it. Uh, you know, whatever weird relationship Johnny Five and Roland Turner have where, <laughs> you know, he's dragging this guy out of the bathroom after he's, you know, on the verge of ODing. <laughs> like, that just works for them. And, uh, you know, Jim and Gene, they have their thing that works for them. And, uh, you know, Al Cody and everybody else, you know, who, you know, all are have the kind of passing appearance of these, like, other figures from that era. Uh, it's, you know, they all are getting on in their lives and, you know, kind of feel pretty good about their place in the scene. And Lewin is just incapable of, of achieving that. Yeah, I guess Al Cody, I hadn't really thought about it, had the identical box of unsold records. Right. But they were under the table of an apartment that he had. Yeah. As opposed to him <laughs> lugging them homelessly from couch to couch. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And that's one of, like, a few moments where... When Lewin tries to put the the box of records under the table, and Al's already there, and like I honestly I hadn't even thought about it, you know making that kind of direct <laughs> comparison before, and it's a, I think it's a great one. Well, one one reason why I was uh, excited to to see a music based one was because I, I really enjoyed O Brother or Art Thou mm-hmm. from the Cullen Brothers, and I think the music because I'm I'm not really familiar with much. I mean, even something mainstream like Dylan, I only sort of have passing familiarity with. So I think it, it was almost very similar to me watching that movie where it's, I can tell it's well recorded and the voices are nice and stuff, but I don't know if like, is this like trite and they're copying other people or is this supposed to be genuinely like something really good within that genre? So I, that, when talking about how I felt a little bit disconnected from Lewin Davis, I think it was that kind of outsider. Like, I, I don't know whether he's supposed to be good. Like, when people are rejecting him, I don't know if that's the happenstance of life or whether he really is, like, you know, a cloying ripoff or something like that. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, well, fair enough there, where they, you know, could have been a little less opaque. Um, I mean, I, I never... I If the, the Coens want to be opaque, it's fine with me. Like, <laughs> I feel like the thing that kind of, you know, 
grounds the film's answer to that is when he goes to see Bud Grossman. Uh, like, this is the guy who knows what's going on. You know, you want to meet him, you want to play at the Gate of Horn, you, you know, if you know, you're trying to find representation or you, you know, you try to go to him. Like, he's the guy who gets it. He's the, the ears you want to hear your record. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think his take on Lewin is kind of exactly what, by the end of it, we're supposed to, uh, how we're supposed to feel about him as an artist, that... Uh, you know, he's good. He's not great. He's not going to be never going to probably never going to make it as a solo act in the way that he wants to. And if he could kind of get out of his own way and realize that, uh, you know, be part of this trio that, that Grossman is putting together, which in another you know little nerdy 60s folk music reference uh, <laughs> is actually a reference to the the guy that. Bud Grossman is based on who's, I don't remember his first name, I believe it's Alfred Grossman, mm-hmm. uh, who's the guy who actually ran the Gate of Horn in Chicago. He put together Peter, Paul, and Mary, and when he says, do you want to be a part of a trio, you know, two two guys and a girl singing, that's what he's referring to. Oh, interesting. But, uh, yeah, you know, like, this movie, and this is, I think, one of the things that I really noticed this time around, is that, you know... Of course, it's all about Lewin, but, I mean, just in every way, it's all about Lewin. And, you know, it was I, it, it spoke to me very immediately as, you know, being about this guy who needs to get out of his own way to be able to be happy. Um, but there are so many things that are, you know, this movie lives in its symbolism in a very, very specific way. And that's another interesting comparison that I... I uh, I think can be made to a, a serious man. Um, a lot of cats. <laughs> <laughs> Lewin is the cat. That was another thing I realized this time around. Lewin is the cat. Uh, she was not wrong about that. Whoever that, that lady at the university was. Oh, also the university professor connection. Between uh, Larry Gopnik and uh, Mr. Gorfind. Oh, oh, that's uh, funny. Yeah, I hadn't noticed that. Hmm. So maybe, uh, maybe Larry came out the other side of that. Okay. <laughs> Connected universes. <laughs> I like things. <laughs> but uh, just in you know watching the serious man again, like that is a film that feels like everything about it is symbolic, and you're supposed to find this deep meaning in you know all the things that happened to Larry. And Larry is desperately trying to like find the deep meaning in everything that's happening to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like no matter how much you sit and think about it, at the end of the day, the answer to you know every every character, every story that you're trying to find meaning in is just kind of no. It all kind of goes the same route as, you know, the story about the goy's teeth. Uh, It's kind of the story of where you're born and what happens to you, and then that's it. (laughs) And then here comes a tornado. (laughs) Um, And I feel like Lewin Davis is the opposite. Uh, There's, it's so, so rich with, like, symbolism that uh, I could be way off base about, but... Uh, like spoke to me in a very like direct way and I think kind of like makes a lot of sense in terms of uh, you know being about him and his life and him feeling trapped in it and um, 
you know, kind of it being the story of him realizing that he is, you know, like you said, tripping over <laughs> his own dick the whole time. Um, you know, the and the thing that people who don't like this movie have the same general complaints about it. And if it fails to connect with them, you know, I won't say it's not the movie's fault. Uh, but people say Lewin is an asshole, which, fair enough. <laughs> and say that, you know, nothing, it feels like nothing happens. And okay, I can kind of see that. And that. Uh, I will say a lot less happened the second time I watched it. Like, <laughs> you know, I always feel like the second time you watch something, sort of, you, you know the path already, you right. know where you are in the story. Right. And I was like, wow, he did go to Chicago and he came back. And like, it, it seemed like he did a lot more shit yeah. you know, when I, the first time around. Which didn't bother me. I just, the, the movie seemed way more complex because I'm trying to keep up with all these characters and right. stuff the first time around. But yeah, definitely, you know, confirms for you, like, no, yeah, took a car one way, took another car back. <laughs> he thought he spent a lot more time doing anything, as he says. Yeah, and, that's true. Uh, no, not the case. <laughs> So um, I want to step back a little bit, and, and we can actually just step through the plot, uh, do a, some basic structural work. But one thing that I want to bring up while I was on things that jumped out at me, you know, during the second time when I had a little better idea, was it occurred to me watching the the dinner party request to play a song where he exploded right. was... The only time that someone sort of earnestly wanted to see him and he couldn't handle it, <laughs> I, that that never that I had never really thought about that, and that yeah. kind of jumped out at me as the the idea of like the you know a- anyone that wants to hear me is not cool enough <laughs> to you know have as an audience. <laughs> Do the one thing that you're good for. <laughs> Fuck you, man. Um. Yeah. So I guess the. Pretty quickly, as as the movie begins, uh, we're shown this character, Lewin Davis, who is just couch surfing from friend to friend before he annoys them too much and has to find someone yeah, else. Acquaintance to acquaintance. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Uh, <laughs> characteristically, he's knocked up the woman they're staying with, <laughs> or that he's <laughs> staying with, and has to borrow money or tries to borrow money right. from the. From the boyfriend, is it the husband? Are they married? I think just the boyfriend. Ah, uh, but yes, <laughs> asks to borrow money from the boyfriend for the girlfriend's abortion, but don't let her know. <laughs> <laughs> he, he manages to weave a pretty big mess for himself in the opening minutes, which gives us a good idea of the kind of house guest he is. Yeah, pretty immediately establishes himself as like, this is the kind of character you're going to be on a ride with. <laughs> <laughs> And we, we know pretty immediately that he used to be part of a partnership. They play coy for a little while, and we find out that his uh, original partner killed himself. It takes longer than I remembered, though, mm-hmm. for that to come out. It isn't until he's he's talking about it with uh, when he's on the, the road trip to Chicago. Uh, and he tells... Um, is that right? Yeah, it sounds Yeah, right. because it's not until... You know, it definitely, it's not like early on, I remember them then sort of teasing it down quite a bit yeah, into he, the plot. He, he, yeah, he tells, uh, he tells Roland Turner that. And sorry, and I got muddled in my mind for a second there because the dinner party happened, the blow-up happens before he gets to go, he goes to Chicago. That's right, that's right. Um, I'm jumping around. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, no uh, just in my own dumb brain. Um, 
just because you know he makes such a a fuss about you know like Mike's part, fuck Mike's part, right, and all right. that. But it's still you don't know what happened to Mike mm-hmm. at that point. Do you think that the the movie is trying to say much about the loss of Mikey jumping off a bridge? Like, do you do you get the sense that he was sort of on the path to success? And like, uh, if we're talking about all these all these niches that people fit into and they have their groove. Like, did he have one, and then this sort of disruption knocked him out of it? Or do you think maybe he was... Was he miserable with Mikey, too? Uh, like, I guess he was miserable with Mikey, too. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's the box of unsold records. and you know, <laughs> Nothing he, tells you that it was going well. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, you know... Including the suicide, I guess. <laughs> um, largely indicative of a very certain trajectory. Um, but, you know, when he's talking to Mel at the beginning, and, you know... Mel says like uh, you need to people need to get used to the idea of you as a solo act and he's like what the fuck are you talking about like I was never popular with Mike right <laughs> so, right that's true <laughs> um, so yeah uh, so it's know. a little bit more window dressing that the partner killed himself than sort of a, a deep character moment you think yeah it's just I, you know Mike took the easy way out and um, you know Blue and just kind of you know stuck there you know, and when when you think about it on that level, you know, does is his resistance to becoming, you know, part of a group again, it, not you know, being kind of like terrified of like a sense of loss about, or and having to re- be, is his resistance to becoming part of a group again about some kind of you know terror about. Uh, having to like relive that that bit of loss or you know yeah I mean I guess that that is like the true abandonment issue if you had a partner in that kind of situation yeah and he never nothing really indicates that he feels any like guilt about having you know not himself driven Mike towards suicide but that they're you know collecting <laughs> that he seems to drive all his friends insane <laughs> and one of them killed themselves because everything you touch turns to shit <laughs> um but you know that they're, if anything, that their uh, their their joint collective failure as a you know musical entity was what drove Mike to kill himself. There's no, he doesn't. We don't really engage with that at all. But you know he's in the first part of the film anyway. He's um, well, actually, maybe I'm about to reverse course on that. <laughs> uh, I think one of the th- the, the things that is you know in in talking about the symbolism in the film like the song that they sang together uh dink song is dink song in parentheses fare thee well i believe is the (laughs) official title um you know he uh charting we (laughs) and hopefully trending very soon um it's uh you, you encounter the song three different times in the film um, the first time is when he's in the Gorfine's apartment in the beginning, and he puts on the record, and that's when he and Mikey are singing it together. And he, you know, he puts it on, and the next thing you see, and you know, it's with tricky editing, uh, so that they can use the song to play over the montage of him, you know, going, you know, back uptown and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he puts on the record, and the next thing you see is him walk out of the apartment. Like he's running away from it, mm-hmm. and the second time you hear it is when he's back in the Gorfine's apartment, and he starts playing it, and he's playing it because he thinks that this you know guy who likes early music would enjoy it, and that <laughs> you know would be the best way to entertain everybody there. 
And then, you know, the idea of Mikey is introduced to the equation with the, uh, with the harmony. And he flips out and he runs away from the song again. And the last time you hear it is when he's back at the gas lamp and it's replaying, you know, it's a different time, obviously, but he's replaying, you know, this scene from the beginning, which uh, on one glorious day in the once room prompted a discussion of whether or not there is time travel in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the last song he plays before he leaves the stage in, you know, the first time around is, you know, Hang Me. And the second time, he plays uh, fairly well. And it's kind of like this cathartic moment for him where he's finally, like, I feel like that's kind of telling the story of him accepting the, like, mess he's made for himself. Or not accepting the mess that he's made for himself, but accepting that he's the one who made the mess for himself and that this is the life that he has to live and that, you know, it's time to start taking responsibility for it and, you know, trying to trying to move forward. Mm-hmm. He does, uh, I mean, not in the, the like actual diagnosed sense, but he does seem a bit sociopathic and like he can't see that other people have their own lives. Like they're very much just what they mean to his life to people. Mm-hmm. I, I get the sense. Um, so one moment that was almost, well, I don't know, a moment, but a, a scene that was, I think, almost intentionally throwaway, just kind of shuffled into the mix, was recording the novelty record, the <laughs> Spaceman, what is it? Please, Mr. Kennedy. <laughs> yes, there you go. Hit me, uh, come on. <laughs> please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh-oh. Yeah, there you go. Uh, the Adam Driver cameo <laughs> before he was Kylo Ren. Um. So yeah, that that's a moment that, I, as I said, I felt was intentionally just sort of slotted in there as a seemingly random thing. And of course, he signs away his royalties in favor of getting the check faster. Yeah, <laughs> which I'm sure is more than one autobiography's you know horrible scarlet letter on it. <laughs> For the money that he didn't actually even need that desperately, because it turned out the abortion was already paid for. <laughs> yes. And his agent would have given him his coat, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that scene is amazing, though. And that's, it gives you so much about his character and, you know, like his his approach to music that, uh, like that scene is really essential, I think, to, you know, the way the whole film comes to a head in in the climax when he gets his ass kicked for the first, second time uh-huh. um <laughs> for the time travelish time <laughs> yeah uh, but uh, you know getting his attitude on you know like kind of exploiting folk music you know like you said as a novelty and you know commercializing it which he says to gene later is you know he thinks is careerist and sad um i guess it, it does say a lot that he desperately tried to rush to get to this session because he doesn't have a penny to his name and then is asking who wrote this shit, basically, yeah. when he gets in there. <laughs> that does say a lot about his sort of mindset. Justin Timberlake in that scene is fucking <laughs> amazing. Uh, when he's like giving the, uh, the the instruction to Lewin and then just his reaction when Lewin, you know, 
he says, and if I had a chance to ask the Cohen like one question about this movie, I would ask them what their direction was to uh, to Oscar Isaac in that scene because my guess is that it's when he says the line, you know, but but who wrote this? It was like <laughs> be just enough of a prick about it that you can't walk it back. <laughs> yeah, and then the. the the, the looks that he gets, you know, even you know in the moments after that, from Justin Timberlake is just amazing. And then, you know, as they're singing the song, just how earnest he is, it's, uh, <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the I would argue social network and stuff is is enough evidence that he's actually a good actor. But yeah, there's a ton of nuance in his limited roles here. Yeah. <laughs> did you ever see Alpha Dog by any chance? I don't think I did. Because I, I, I feel like I, I might have bought the HD DVD or something. But. <laughs> I've never seen it either, and that's one that's been on the list for a while because I hear he's he's great in that also. But yeah, like you know that and that song is incredible. Um, and I know there was like a there there was a fuss around Oscar time about why that wouldn't have you know would, wouldn't that be the one song that could be nominated because it was original, and it actually wasn't in like such a brilliant way that's it, that it's so frustrating that it you know gets punished for not being entirely original because it certainly could have won the Oscar. Um, I'll pretend that I remember what actually did and say that it was less deserving, but I don't actually. Um, well, I mean, in protest, you don't need to know. <laughs> um, but I think even before that, you mentioned the, the careerist line, which that, that definitely struck a chord with me. Yeah, And I, I think it might have even been the same conversation of... Um, sort of someone suggesting that he figure out what to do with his life and it his response is to just exist and that seems so appalling to him where i guess that gets back to a little bit the the lewin larry in a serious man thing is sort of larry doesn't seem that upset to just exist but is just thrown by these existential questions at the middle of it where lewin like is doesn't understand any of it like i I don't know what to try and even live by. Like, he doesn't have a community even telling him rules. He's just sort of adrift a little bit. Yeah. And he has his own, like, idea. Well, he, he I mean, has... he worked at sea, for God's sake. <laughs> 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 yeah, and he has this, like, very romanticized idea of, you know, what the, the folk singer... I don't know about it, if it's what the folk singer life is, but if it's it, it's you know kind of what what folk music is you know supposed to be, and which is the other thing that you get out of the please Mr. Kennedy scene, uh, or I guess really the biggest thing you get out of the please Mr. Kennedy scene, um, and uh, you know at some point it's you know if he's going to have to compromise what he feels the you know folk singer life or the you know what uh the the kind of folk music that he's going to create and how it's going to be received is going to be compromised then fuck it he's gonna go back to sea and (laughs) then literally be adrift in the way that he you know has been figuratively so far it's a prequel to the master (laughs) (laughs) oh man (laughs) all right next week (laughs) So the, the, the Chicago road trip, was that 
Was that entirely a consequence of? I don't even remember who it was. Now he's, he's just a just a leech on everyone he comes into contact with. <laughs> but someone told him that that he had a friend who would drive to Chicago if he'd split gas. Yeah, Al it, Cody. The it guy was that he, incidental, right? Yeah, Al Cody that he met in the Please Mr. Kennedy session said, <laughs> "Well, then next week this car is going to Chicago." Um, and then he was on his way to Chicago because there was a way to do that to. And it's funny, too, that how little is made of why he would even want to go there. Like, early, much <laughs> well, early. I scheduled the abortion. I may as well get out of town. <laughs> uh, she doesn't want him there. It's, it was made very explicit uh, by her and by him. Um, uh, yeah, earlier on, it was mentioned uh, that by Troy Nelson that he had met Mr. Grossman in Chicago. Uh, and he's a great man. And, uh, you know, there's, it's never stated why he wants to go to Chicago yet until he gets there and gets to the Gate of Horn. He's just on the ride with this heroin-addled jazz man and dime store Jack Kerouac. Yeah, I mean, I, I probably didn't make it 10% into On the Road before I, uh, before I gave up. But that it is funny how that, that does feel like a thematic gap in the story. Of sort of like then he decided to go on the road with these random people. That sort of feels very thematic of on the road. <laughs> yeah. With his cat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, people were <laughs> both angry at and oddly accepting of the cat. <laughs> right. <laughs> or just casually mocking, you know, because it was neither here nor there that there was also a cat in the car. <laughs> <laughs> Who asked him if he was a faggot? Aside from everyone. <laughs> was it John Goodman? It was John Goodman. Folk singer with a cat. You queer? <laughs> so what, is, what does the cat mean to you? Let me ask. <sighs> I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily have a deep introspective response to it. I think the, the best I got was I said it out loud when we were watching the movie yesterday was that a serious man is all about whether the cat's alive or dead, and this movie can't even tell if it's the same cat, let alone whether it was hit by the car. Like, so, I mean, I think it's sort of the constant state of confusion. I don't know that it's um, specifically referencing Schrodinger's cat, except that they're the people who made A Serious Man several right. years before. So it's hard for me, me to believe that it's totally unrelated. Schrodinger's yeah, two to three cats. <laughs> Schrodinger's cat escaped when he was explaining it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I it didn't jump out at me in any new particular way of like, oh, clearly this symbolizes this. Uh, what about you? Did the, the cat thing jump out at you with repeated viewings? or? Well, this is one of the things that's kind of like made sense to me immediately, which doesn't mean that it actually makes any sense. But... <laughs> Art! <laughs> Uh, yes, I was arted at or arted on by the cat. Um, and to me, it was like, you know, because it was, you know, it looked like the Gorefine's cat and it was kind of, you know, Lewin not being able to tell the difference. And then, you know, even after that, there's no reason for him to carry this goddamn cat around. <laughs> right. He could drop it right back on the sidewalk where he found it and the cat could have moved on with its life. So... Like, why is Put it he... somewhere nicer than you found it and call it a day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not hard to do. <laughs> uh, so just in, you know, kind of the idea of Lewin feeling trapped in his life and 
you know, seeing all these people around him who seem to have it figured out in a way that he just doesn't even know how to start, you know, moving toward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you got the Gorefines. They've got it figured out. They've got the most figured out of anybody in yeah, that film. Yeah. Um, and him taking this cat in just kind of felt to me like him kind of doing this, you know, what winds up being, you know, very sad impression of someone who had it figured out in the way that the gore finds do. Hmm. So he's like, trying to be domestic with yeah. a cat. So like, look, I can take care of a cat as well as they can. Huh. Like I've got at least that much figured out, you know, how hard is a fucking cat? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. Especially since it's a cat that survived on the street for this long. <laughs> I guess presumably he fed it at some point, but maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder how good of care he was actually taking of this cat. Yeah, that's that's definitely not made clear. <laughs> but he definitely realizes at some point that like, nope, I haven't made it that far in, in my life yet. <laughs> this cat is probably better off without me. <laughs> so it it may be a thematic thing throughout the whole movie, but I notice it the most uh, when Lewin gets to Chicago of. Uh, actually, the the spoilers show that I went to, uh, I went with, with John, uh, funnily enough, and one of his major observations was what I'm talking about, where he always chooses to walk through the snow, where it seems like there's a path on both sides, there's a sidewalk, there's a shoulder to the road, but Lewin just sort of, he's dropped off in front of the snow, so he may as well just walk through it. And then look down at his shoes all annoyed at what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and that um, that was one of the major things that I, I noticed in the whole Chicago sequence. Uh, just because, I guess, John and I had discussed it. So that sort of right. stuck out to me watching it a lot. And um, and I'm a, a huge fan of, of Amadeus, as listeners of this, of this podcast know. So uh, the meta joke of being turned down by Salieri was <laughs> was uh, was pretty great to me. So those were the things that jumped out to me about the the whole Chicago encounter. I don't remember if a whole lot else happens there. He's sort of his dreams are shattered, and then he decides to go home. Yeah, from what pretty I much. But he just hitches a ride right back. <laughs> uh, did anything jump out to you about Chicago? No, like uh, you know, we had talked about it before that uh, you know. You've got nobody to blame but yourself for walking through that fucking puddle. So, right. <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, and Bud Grossman is the character's name. Bud Grossman is the character's name. Yeah, I yeah, and just what, sort of his focus on like it's not that you're bad; it's that you're not profitable. Like, yeah, you don't have own. everything it takes right. for a market. Yeah. Um, I guess the one thing I did notice this time around was. Uh, there's the you know the whole film like the, with the, the color timing the way it's shot it just it looks like a fading photograph the whole time, uh, and it's like it's it's beautiful and sad and brilliant. I think the one moment where I noticed the most you know just sheer blue, um, it's a moment where that feels very distinct. Uh, it's when they're on their way to Chicago. And, like, the sky is as deep of blue as anything in that film is. And uh, there's something kind of, like, weirdly hopeful about, about it. 
and it cuts immediately from that to when uh, you know Lewin and Johnny Five and Roland Turner are in the restaurant where uh, that has also a you know a pretty distinct color palette as far as the film is concerned uh, with those like yellow and orange chairs and all that and it it feels like it's the weird Art Deco ness of it is almost out of like a Clockwork Orange or something. <laughs> I kind of like. I like going to norms and restaurants like oh, that. Oh yes, and it totally. Looks, it looks like the pictures of the original ones that yeah. are hanging in the restaurants now. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but yeah, that one. As far as like the trip to Chicago and like the idea that it could represent something good for him, uh, you know, in that moment where like suddenly the the sky just isn't gray, and you know, maybe he'll go meet Bud Grossman and. That'll be what what's going to turn this whole thing around for him. Hmm. Um, was something that I it was it was a revelation for me on this viewing. Hmm. I I didn't actually notice it that much this time, but actually thinking back to my original discussions with John, I remember that seeing it in um might have even been in the dome. I can't remember, but it, it was it was in a nice arc by theater, and I remember that on the the long road shots of the car moving in the distance that the sound design was great to the point that you heard the little humps, like the the little thing in the road when they go over it. Right. And that that struck me as something not like signature Cohen-esque, but just the attention to detail yeah. and so much mood that it provided of this largely silent shot with this thing. Um that yeah, when when you say that you you talk about this this shot of a, a specifically blue sky, I totally believe that something like that would be on purpose and and have intent behind it from the Coens. Yeah, like everything. I mean, I, I guess Kubrick was sort of the the stereotype of it feels like you can make anything a painting, but the Coens I never feel are accidental. Yeah, the yeah deliberate <laughs> deliberate's a good word for yeah, it. Yeah, one of the words that comes to mind there. And uh, it was interesting. The um, one of the great special features on the Criterion Blu-ray uh, of Inside Lewin Davis is a conversation between Guillermo del Toro and the Coens. Yeah, I I, uh, I had heard about this, but I hadn't seen any of it before you had it playing when I walked into your house yesterday. Hmm. Um, it was called uh, in a kind of. Uh, delicious, you know, fuck you to the millennials who <laughs> will don't understand uh, the the idea of you know film footage uh, or the idea of movie footage, you know, being measured in feet. It's called the first hundred <laughs> feet, the last hundred feet, and it was uh, Del Toro mentions at some point in their conversation that you can find in the first hundred feet that a you know filmmaker shoots the you know what their career will be. Uh, huh. Yeah, I mean, he said in much more profound terms and in his, you know, sexy his Mexican Rather accent. bombastic sense. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... You could add us together and we wouldn't have a Del Toro <laughs> level of energy. Uh, if only. <laughs> um... But, uh, yeah, there, it, the, whole, the whole thing is a great conversation about... Uh, they were talking about uh, Blood Simple, which was their first film, and Lewin Davis, which is their, which at that point was their latest film. Sure. And uh, just kind of the through lines you can follow between the two in their career. And, you know, they talked about the, 
uh, kind of the, the deliberacy that we were talking about, uh, being born in Blood Simple, just being such a shoestring budget and them having so few resources. And, uh, you know, one of them said, you know, when it came down to set decoration, saying that, like, yeah, dress that wall and that wall. We don't need the other two because we're only going to shoot in this direction because wow. that's, like, all we have time for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and stuff like that. And that the that mode of thinking just kind of stuck with them and kind of became their template. Huh. Do you know... I've always heard they're... Like, they know exactly what they want and that kind of stuff. But do you know, are they storyboard-driven or do they have it all in their head? Kind of the degree of, like, okay, this line from this angle, we don't need coverage because we know we're using that angle. Like, are they that exact from the beginning? Very storyboard-driven, and that started in the same place. Of, you know, we have this much money, we have this many days to shoot it, we need... Well, I mean, we have this much film going down to... Yeah, exactly. 100 feet. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was... And it was all kind of, you know, born out of that sense of necessity that... uh, Yeah, that they they never shook off and, like, turned into, like, their greatest strength. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, like like you said, you watch a Coen Brothers film and you can... you, You can tell that, like... As they, you know, were typing that page, they knew exactly what it was going to look like. (laughs) And I mean, whether you like Hail Caesar or not, I imagine there are a few filmmakers these days that could get that kind of cast assembled for something that big and complicated. Like, I can totally believe that they storyboard all that shit in advance. And, uh, you know... Maybe Jonah Hill was only in two sequences, but it probably, you know, he was probably on set six hours and looks exactly like they wanted him to look. Yeah. You know, so they could splice it in. Right. Oh, those Coens. <laughs> I forget who said it, but I have written down on my notebook, I thought singing was a joyous expression of the soul. <laughs> Maybe this was the dinner party. When that was the dinner party. Yeah. For but sure. uh, I thought that was another good... Uh, not not an expression of what Lewin is, but sort of, I guess, the antithesis. <laughs> sort of the idea of what he's fighting against of... Well, fighting against sounds too strong. But sort of the idea of it's supposed to be a true expression of emotion and reality. And pure happiness is not from this world. Well, it's funny. The, I feel like, you know, that moment might be him being forced to confront his own hypocrisy because, you know, he's so resentful of the idea of this, you know, novelty folk song and which, you know, suggests that he's really devoted to this idea of authenticity and, you know, songwriting and and even song production since he's sitting in a studio. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, he says, you know, his response to that uh, or that is the response to him saying uh like this is my job this is my career this is how i you know this is how i get by and now you're trying to you know ex- exploit that for you know a few moments of <laughs> your own enjoyment <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i think that i mean i think a lot of his resentment in that moment probably comes out of the idea that um sorry I mean, it almost feels like a bit of a hipster vibe, like, if a ton of people enjoy it, you failed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, but then, you know, he didn't expect 
I, I feel like he didn't really expect um, Please Mr. Kennedy to succeed because he just thought it was, you know, throw away garbage. Right. Um, so I, I think in that moment, and like this all comes back to. I'm trying to wait till the end to talk about the ending, but uh, like I feel like this is kind of pushing toward what I kind of drew from you know what's happening at the the very like literally the very end um, after he plays fairly well the last time, and um, you know one of the things that uh, I, I noticed about that scene this time around is when you first see him playing, you know, Hang Me, Oh Hang Me in the beginning, you know, there are, it opens on the mic and then it kind of, you know, the camera drifts back a little bit and you catch him singing into the mic and then there are a few, you know, there are various angles of him singing, but there are also shots of just the crowd watching. Uh, and when he plays uh, fairly well at the end, after playing Hang Me, uh, the second time, mm-hmm. the second first time, or the first second time. Well, um, I, I didn't recognize any of these songs, and I totally recognize that that was the the second time he played it from the beginning of the movie. Yeah. So I thought that was it was wonderfully chosen for sort of the the recognition factor, even if a lot of the music blurred together in the movie for me. Yeah. Well, they did a good job of setting it up that way. They, I mean, you're going to remember the the opening, you know three minutes of this of the film or however long that song is yeah um but when uh when you come back to him at the gas lamp again or the gaslight again gaslight right yeah um i don't know unless i've gaslight have i gaslit myself (laughs) Uh, uh wikipedia says gaslight so infallible (laughs) um he uh the camera is on him the entire time like there are shots of you know from behind that include the audience from the side that include the audience but there are no cutaways just to the audience reacting Mm -hmm. Uh, which goes back to what i said earlier about how i think that that song kind of represents him kind of you know making his peace with his own you know tripping over his own dick (laughs) (laughs) um but, and I imagine that the Mikey thing must be somewhat of an arc. Like, if he's plotting out his own life and his memory, I imagine sort of getting over the the whole thing with Mikey would probably be what the, the present the present tense feels like. Yeah. A sort of like that phase of his life. And like and one of the you know, it's it's a great moment that kind of contextualizes slash you know, excuses how much of an asshole he is to the <laughs> film. When he goes back to the gore finds at the end, and, uh, you know, it's interesting, because just putting this together now in this conversation as, you know, because I was, I kind of remembered that the first time we hear about Mikey killing himself was on the road, mm-hmm. um, so to speak. Um, but, uh, you know, when he freaks out at the Gorefines and, you know, leaves when, you know, fuck Mike's part and all that, mm-hmm. um, you know, he comes back there and uh, the, uh, the, the wife, uh, the lady Gorefine, <laughs> Mrs. Gorefine. Where is his scrotum? <laughs> You had the, the Blu-ray menu playing for a while, so I heard that <laughs> yeah. more than once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, uh, we'll, we'll call that one embedded. Um, 
But when he would return to the Gorfines and, you know, she, uh, Mrs. Gorfine says, like, you know, yeah, Mike's, Mike's death has been, like, really rough on all of us. And, you know, in all the times that he was being an asshole before... He's like, I didn't know you were people. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um... Sorry, I didn't want to do it, really. No. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, yeah, that's, you know, like, that's what he was going through in that moment where it just seemed like he was blowing up and being a prick. And, uh, like, no, that's that's what it was about. Mm-hmm. Mike I thought is, that, was, that was also kind of a, a real-life sweet moment, I thought, that they forgave him, where a lot of movies are very much, like, the actions are the sum total of what you've seen in the movie. Whereas he's probably been a longtime friend of theirs and they know that he's troubled and they know that he lost his partner and it's it's okay. Yeah. Like, I, I thought that was kind of a nice touch where it would have been much easier to do, like, a super awkward sequence of, you know, oh, we haven't seen him since. Or, and, like, have tag-up pun jokes or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, at that point, I feel like his character really needs a moment like that. But it's really impressive that he <laughs> can see in his eyes that he's <laughs> defeated. But oh no, I was gonna say I, not even in you know the story of the film itself, but for the audience. Oh like, okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> because he's been such a you know an asshole through so much of it, um, and it's like it's he great. can't get yelled at again. Not in front of the <laughs> for audience. The love of God. Uh, and it's great that it came so organically, and that it's you know you know from these people who were. Live in a loving home. <laughs> and, yeah, like, you know, it makes total sense. They knew Mikey, and they knew what Mikey meant to Lewin, and that, you know, while everybody was very upset and emotional in that moment, that, you know, that's that's what was going on. You know, like I said, everybody's been affected by Mikey's death, and, you know, Lewin more than anyone, presumably. Yeah. And I'm sad that I uh, forgot to call him Elwin for this <laughs> entire podcast. <laughs> Well, now I'm sad, too, so I hope you're happy. Ah, <laughs> oh, John Goodman makes his mark with very little screen time. <laughs> awesome. What's the end stand for? <laughs> <laughs> so, as, as someone who doesn't know a ton about how folk music has progressed and stuff, the Bob Dylan thing at the end, is it just that he's instantly overshadowed by someone way more popular that we know, or is that sort of the shifting of the era of music like does Bob Dylan at the end mean something that I'm unaware of Uh, well it's you know it it uh, it really it puts the whole film in a place and a time in in kind of an important way I think when uh, Gene tells Lewin that you know I, I talked to Poppy and I got you you know he said that you can play again and but you're gonna have to split the basket there's another artist playing that night mm mhm and she says that, you know, the village voice is going to be, I believe it was the village voice. Uh, she says that the village voice was going to be there to, you know, do a write up. Uh, that is referring to the night that, uh, and this is something that I actually learned after I saw the film the first time, mm-hmm. that uh, that was Bob Dylan's breakout, was the write up of him playing at the gas lamp in 1961. Oh, interesting. I feel like that moment is really about him being really stuck in his place and time you know he 
has you know made it clear that he feels like folk music is supposed to be this really pure thing uh, that you know please Mr. Kennedy can go fuck itself <laughs> aside from the royalties that he would love to have had if he sure. knew they were coming um, folk music I has... know Backstreet Boy <laughs> <laughs> or whatever um, you know folk music as careerism is a thing that's you know very sad to him um, and uh, you know it gets to that point where you know he you know when when he has the the moment to present himself to Bud Grossman he plays this traditional folk song that is I mean just not sexy <laughs> as, <laughs> as music as popular music is concerned or you know I don't know any music is concerned really but is uh, you know, it's 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 a classic song. Nobody remembers who the fuck wrote it in the first place. So, so I guess sort of as someone very unfamiliar with blues, et cetera, et cetera, as I already said, um, or with folk rather, like, should I have been? I, I I should have been more agnostic of taste of just sort of like this song has no hook. Like I'm kind of <laughs> that he has his big chance to sing for the sky and like it's nice, but there's no sort of there's no huge oomph moment behind it. Yeah, it's you know that's I feel like in that moment that's his his whole thing is that like this is you know I'm playing real folk motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> so you know we we have you know all that about his character when he goes into that alley. At the end of it, you hear Bob Dylan playing in the background, which is like, you know, the future of folk music. It's it's that whole scene exploding into something that, uh, you know, consumers of popular music are going to like suddenly be interested in. And you have him going and confronting the, you know, the real authentic folk, like these people who are from, I don't remember where, but from somewhere in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this dude is wearing a, you know, very old-timey hat and is pissed off at Lewin for badgering his his wife while she was on stage, while she was playing a very traditional folk song, the kind of thing that he's definitely indicated is what he considers to be the real folk. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just kind of, he's stuck there in the middle. Like, he isn't a part of either. You know, he's being actively rejected by, you know, the history of folk that he desperately tries to identify with. And, you know, he's been left out in the cold by the future of folk that is going to be, you know, commercial and, you know, the thing that he was kind of, you know, bucking against that would have given him the kind of career that he has been, like, trying to get. So you think him yelling at her on stage was him being a hypocrite? Yeah, I think it was. Huh. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not surprised, but it's interesting that that late in the movie, that our protagonist would sort of, something that petty would drive it. Which, that's, I mean, that's kind of how I felt in the movie. Like, I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't think it was something super honorable. But it's interesting to hear you say it, of sort of like, it's almost the, like, self-loathing, like... This is what I'm trying to do, and it's not working. So go fuck yourself. <laughs> like that, it's something kind of petulant from our main character. Which I mean, I guess he was drunkenly yelling at a woman on stage. So yeah. There's no, there's no rosy way to paint it. Is it weird that I picture it as Ed Harris beating him up, even though it wasn't him, but like, <laughs> dude in a suit in the shadows. 
Have you confronted Anne <laughs> Harris in the shadows in an alley in, in Greenwich Village before? Maybe it's a beautiful mind that you shadowy and mysterious. <laughs> I don't know. Something about it. Anyway. We're identifying with his voice in, uh, in Gravity. <laughs> so there's that moment earlier where, you know, Mrs. Gorfind kind of uh, causes him to confront his own hypocrisy. Um, and, uh, you know, this kind of feels like another moment of that uh, at the end where... Um, <laughs> He's not the one playing, so he can't angrily stop. He has to just scream at the person on stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, that... It, it's such a complicated dichotomy that it... Again, I, I think by the end of the movie, the first time I was... Uh, uh, not that it was lost on me, but that I was kind of exhausted and didn't know where this character was coming from and, and didn't know that I necessarily understood the whole backdrop of just as he like, no, your protagonist still hasn't learned all that much as kind of a douche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like, um, I don't know that I necessarily, you know, got him to this place the first time around uh, in, you know, kind of what I, what I took away from the film, but um, like, I definitely feel like, you know, and, 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 you know, based on the way we interact with that, you know, the song that, as, you know, Poppy points out, you and Mikey used to play. Mm -hmm. You know, one, him letting the fake cat go, realizing that that was just a bad idea and that's, you know, just not what he's about. And two... <laughs> Locking him in that car. Yeah. Somebody's going to find him. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess he is sort of doubling downwards, like... Either they're both going to die, or someone will find them both. <laughs> Either way, his fingerprints aren't on file, so <laughs> everything will be fine. <laughs> you know, I think also very important is, you know, when they're replaying the scene of him waking up in the morning in the Gorefine's apartment, and when he's leaving, and when, you know, it's, you know, it's very much about him learning from his mistakes when he doesn't let the cat out the second time. I do remember that. Was was that the same sequence where you said it out loud when we were watching of it's the first time that we've seen him fall asleep? Oh, yes, that's true. That's or, right. Or like it's almost always frantically some cut to him like, oh, how did I get here and what's wrong now? Yeah, he uh, yeah he wakes up in Jim and Jeans. He wakes up in the car more than once. And, you know, he's he wakes up in Al Cody's. And, uh, yeah, the only time you ever see him actually fall asleep and, like, you know, get some goddamn rest is <laughs> when he's at the Gorefines, you know, at, at the end there, right before, you know, where, you know, and if I'm to be believed, uh, we see the, the evidence through the, the Cohen's uh, symbolism of him having learned multiple lessons, you know, doesn't let the cat back out, <laughs> goes to the gas lamp and gaslight, shit. Damn it. I think it's light. All right. I forget which is the one is it that's yes, a movie light. and which is the one that is, you know, I can't escape when I'm in San Diego during Comic-Con. <laughs> Once again, <laughs> Wikipedia equals fact, so gaslight. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the crowds were sourced. <laughs> we're good. <laughs> the earth is round <laughs> for now. But, uh, yeah, you know, at the end there when he, you know, he plays the song and uh, kind of, you know, finally accepts that he's in the life that he's made for himself. And, 
immediately after that is told kind of you know has his agency in that manner taken away from him because <laughs> the the old world and the new world won't accept him i just i thought that was a great observation about the him falling asleep where having spent years now in a startup environment where sometimes you work you know 100 hours a week and sometimes it wanes and everything i've definitely felt the difference where just waking up and not quite remembering when you fell asleep or what you were doing is is one thing like it sort of feels like life is moving real fast and everything but choosing like turning off all the lights and setting your alarm and and choosing when to go to sleep is an interesting sign of control yeah whereas someone couch surfing all the time and like I don't, I don't remember if the movie made a huge deal of whether he's getting wasted at the show or anything like that, but just the idea of not knowing where you're going to go next, and maybe it's at 4 a.m. when I'm five friends deep of which friend would let me stay on their couch. Yeah, going through that address book, which was yeah another, <laughs> yeah, another so, great indicator of his situation and you know, the life he's stuck himself in. So I thought that was that was a beautiful observation of something that the second time through I didn't even notice, but that, that definitely resonated with me once you pointed it out, of sort of the, the idea of choosing to go to sleep versus just waking up. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a really cool thing. And part of it too, I think, is him, you know, how lucky he is to be in that bed because that was when the Gorefines took him back in after he was such a piece of shit the last time he was there. Yeah. <laughs> so is him getting beat up again the end? Like, I'm, I'm trying to remember what's the closing shot and stuff. Yeah, that was the end. It was... And the first time he gets beat up and it's it's shot a little bit differently the second time around. Uh, the first time is very much from his perspective. Uh, you you come out into the alley and you know Lewin is in the foreground and you see this guy in the shadows and the second time you come back to it uh, the um, it's from the 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 end of the alley out by the street and Lewin is you know the uh, the uh, mid- aggressor the <laughs> bam um, <laughs> the, uh, the Midwest aggressor is you know kind of in in, in the midground and Lewin is pretty you know pretty far back some somewhere and uh and the you know the cohen's beloved very wide lenses um <laughs> so you have a fuller idea of geography the second time around or... um i think it's less about that and more about it just not being from his perspective necessarily huh. okay um you know, i don't really remember <clears throat> And, uh, you know, the second time around, they have more or less the same conversation. They drop a line or two just to get through it a little faster because <laughs> you've seen it already. Oh, wife's a cunt. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, dude walks off in the same shot that he uh, we dissolved from the first time around. And then we continue on with the scene after that where we see Lewin kind of drag himself out to the curb. And, uh, you know, he's, you know, he, he's walking, he's on his feet, but he is weak because he just got the shit beat out of him. Um, a kind of refreshingly accurate representation of what it's like to get, you know, the, <laughs> that kind of one-sided beating. Um, I was going to say the shot reminded me of the Raid 2, which was not a realistic idea of what it's like <laughs> to take a beating. Somewhere else on the spectrum, for sure. Um and he's sitting there watching the you know the cab drive off, and 
uh, with the guy who just kicked his ass in it, you know, going back to the Midwest, presumably, and says, you know, au revoir. <laughs> Taking him back to his high-income life where he can pay for cabs. <laughs> um, yeah, au revoir. That's it. That's that's where we, oh, that's right. uh, where we leave Mr. Davis. <laughs> After I saw this movie, I said, I want Oscar Isaac to conquer the world. <laughs> uh, I was just like that thrilled with like him and his performance and all that. Uh, after having seen him in such garbage as Sucker Punch and such weirdness as uh, Drive. <laughs> and then yeah, he, he went on to be Apocalypse, and apparently that movie isn't that good. Uh, that's that's a, he- a separate conversation. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't remember her from that. Did you see it? Which one? X-Men Apocalypse. I did. Oh, you did? Uh-huh. What's, uh, what's, what's your quick uh, thought on that? A couple weeks later, like, if you would ask me if I had seen it, I would have said, no. Wait, yes. Truly, <laughs> <Like, laughs> the, the emotional impact was uh, <laughs> apocalyptic. As far as Oscar Isaac was concerned, it really was sort of like, I, I heard it described as Ultron-y, of like, you really don't know who this person is, and then they make the immediate jump from I want to save mankind, and the way to do that is to obliterate everybody. <laughs> and it's it's not great. No. Yeah, there, there's a neat Quicksilver sequence that is probably on YouTube already. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I heard he was the highlight the second time around. As well, well, did you see Days of Future Past? I did, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's... You hate to say it, but the cool sequence is a better version of that from... You know, uh, from gotcha. Days of Future Past, and like I, I thought it was really cool. Like he he handles a room in Days of Future Past. He handles the the X Mansion in the new one. Like oh, that's I cool. forget exactly what it is, but there's like a giant explosion, and he's like putting mattresses in front of people and pulling all the students out in front of the on the grass and stuff. Uh-huh. Like it, it's neat. That's cool. but the it's the movie is not amazing overall. Uh-huh. It's cool since it's apparently the best time they get out of it. <laughs> they they do Wolverine's origin, which, as usual, is a little bit like it's fun, but it's like this, was this the fourth time? Like, it was neat, but not neat enough that they needed to do it again. So he's screaming and busting out of a tank and then running around naked. He's and, got the uh, scuba you know thing on. He's got the eye mask. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. Um, <laughs> I don't know how we got on this. <laughs> the hopefully via Oscar Isaac. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, that was the first time I remembered seeing Oscar Isaac in anything, and you know, obviously he's he's been pretty awesome so far. Ex Machina was yeah was definitely cool to see him take on something very different than this. Yeah. <laughs> and Star Wars, I mean, once again. You talk J.J. Abrams out of killing you. You gotta be good. <laughs> <laughs> Worked for Matthew Fox. Worked for Oscar Isaac. <laughs> Different observations the last time around. Sort of overall summation. Um, well, as far as the ending was concerned, like I think it really... It was always kind of in the back of my mind, but it, I think it really kind of... Really kind of struck this time that... You know, him getting beat up by the old world of folk and while, you know, Bob Dylan is playing inside Living Mountain in the Cold, that's, you know, kind of him being like that trapped in his place and time 
that's what you know that was all about because <clears throat> well, you know new world doesn't want you in old world well you call them assholes already <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, you, uh, yeah, because, you know, he was, like, that devoted to the idea of the purity of folk, and then, you know, somebody asked him to just, you know, play out of the, what's the fucking line? Uh, what I, um, Magical the joy thing again? Yeah. Uh, a joyous expression of the soul. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that was asked of him, and then he became resentful of that, and so, uh, guess where you're left, buddy? Fucking nowhere. <laughs> Good luck, Elwin. <laughs> Bam. So I, I know this was sort of partially based on a real person. You want to tell me a little bit about that? The ass-kicking, the repeated ass-kicking, or time travelistic <laughs> ass-kicking, whatever the hell it is, that is not so much actually about Mr. Van Rock, but the, the, the film kind of grew out of this idea about that the Coens had at some point. It was just, you know, this scene they had in their brain and they didn't know where it came from, but it was Dave Van Ronk getting his ass kicked out out back of... Actually, I think it was a different club originally, but it became the Gaslight. (laughs) The Gaslight, I got it right. (laughs) I was going to say. Yeah, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, they spent, I think, literally a decade trying to figure out why. Like, what is the story that, you know, surrounds this? <laughs> Had and, you heard why Hail Caesar came out so quickly? No. Supposedly, I had heard the Cohen say in interviews recently that when they come up with an idea, that it almost never means it's their next movie. Like, they keep things percolating for years and years. Right. But I guess a Clooney came out. And, like, they had told him about it or something. It was like, yeah, this movie that I'm in, Hail Caesar, is the next thing. So the, the Coens, I guess, sort of jokingly were like, all right, we'll do it. Sort of as the <laughs> they took on the pressure to do, well, he already announced it, so I guess we'll make that next. And uh, I saw them use it as a, a jumping off point for when... What's her name? Uh, Bunny Lebowski. Oh, Trevor Reed. They used it as a jumping off point when Tara Reed was trying to claim that Lebowski 2 was, like, in the works. <laughs> yeah, Clooney tried that, and it worked for him. We'll see how it goes with her. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't, wasn't the response to her more or less like, well, tell us how it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I get the feeling that they sort of, the, their ideas percolate for a long time, and it's sort of... When they come up with something, it's, oh, that's amazing. Okay, now, what did we come up with eight years ago to do now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we let that percolate on the on the back burner for a while. Yeah. Well, one, that makes a lot of sense for Hail Caesar because I was very disappointed by that movie because it was... It <laughs> they had boiled such, it quick and it was undercooked? Yeah, it had such amazing things about it. Like, all those recreations of the, like, 50s studio era films were fucking amazing and very lovely berkeley yes and i loved every frame of all of that but just so weak on story and uh you know that that aspect of it really let me down but you know it's got the cohen's eye it's got you know like the the characters were all a lot of fun uh (laughs) george clooney trying to be a communist was fucking hysterical (laughs) uh 
<laughs> that's what's really going on here. Um, Josh Brolin talking about how everyone tried really hard except George Clooney was hysterical. Where like, <laughs> you you don't really know if it's a joke and he respects him or not. Like, it's pretty great. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm not at all surprised that this took them a long time to come up with the concept after the initial kernel came up. I mean, especially if the if we can believe what uh, what comes out of all the special features and things that they're a two-headed being of like you can ask either of them the directorial question and you'll get the answer right like i think that's so fascinating yeah, especially multiple, multiple actors have like definitely said that so and like i that sounds crazy either way but i could believe it a little bit more if it's they take 10 years to percolate everything between them before jumping into it. So yeah, I'm, I'm again, I'm not at all surprised that it took a long time to get this off the ground. It seems so exact and so precise. And the way that they do, yeah. Um, something like interesting I learned much more recently, because uh, I had known the story about, you know, the idea of Dave Van Rock getting his ass kicked in the back of a you know club in Greenwich Village. Mm-hmm. Um, Pretty soon after I had seen Lewin Davis, which I you know I thought was really interesting, but uh, much more recently I learned uh, from some interview I saw with them that a serious man, since we've been making you know all the comparisons we possibly can, <laughs> uh, was born of a somewhat similar you know weirdness or thought or seed or idea. Where they, it kind of started with the idea of the stoned bar mitzvah boy talking to the rabbi, like the the great rabbi, fucking Marshak. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, Marshak is kind of loosely based on, you know, their rabbi from when they were kids, who was this, you know, very, very, you know, wizened, wizened, and charismatic guy. Who, you know, if you listen to him long enough, you kind of realize that, like, he didn't actually have that much to say. And it was you just, realize he was really great at crafting that place for himself. <laughs> right. More than filling the role. Yeah, more attention was spent to, you know, growing the beard <laughs> than actually to, uh, you know, providing the wisdom that is you know, thought of as accompanying it. Um and uh, it was just this idea that, you know, this stone idiot is sitting in front of, you know, this guy who everybody around them in the community thinks of as being the, the center of, you know, little thought and wisdom and, uh, <laughs> you know, that everybody wants to, you know, talk to and know what he thinks about everything. Like if they just had as much time as they, you know, could to sit and listen to him talk and then you know at the end of the day it's try to be a good boy (laughs) (laughs) i guess that does sort of parallel a little bit with the bud grossman like sort of the that there are gatekeepers with what you're ultimately looking for yeah whereas i guess larry (laughs) never even got to (laughs) got to meet his false god (laughs) <laughs> and after trying so hard to be a serious man yeah I guess it, it really is sort of the, the idea of 
assuming that people know more than you or that there is a greater truth that other people have figured out where, I mean, <laughs> from my skeptical point of view, it's everyone, you know, trying to do their best and all you can ask of them is what they've figured out so far. Whereas that, that doesn't seem to be like, not, not what the movie's about, but not what the community is purporting to, to believe right. in a serious man or even in Lewin Davis. It's interesting because in Lewin Davis, you know, nobody, you know, thinks they have an answer. You know, everybody's just kind of, you know, happy in their own skin. And that's kind of the mockery of, uh, of uh, that's the kind of the mockery for Lewin. I guess a serious man did have a little bit more of like, I am fulfilled because of X, Y, and Z, where this was a little bit more of just like, I know who I am. I know what I'm doing. Like, and whether that lends itself to ultimate spiritual fulfillment is another question. Yeah. But Lewin Davis was more like, he can't find a place for himself for even the most basic of daily activities. Yeah. And yeah, you know, Larry is constantly being told that, like, he already has everything that he needs. Uh, it's like, it's right there. It's your faith, it's your tradition, and all that. Uh, you know, and Lewin is, you know, constantly being told that. You know, <laughs> just pick something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he's fucked it up for himself. So the George Washington Bridge. Who does that? <laughs> <laughs> was the Brooklyn Bridge the main one? It was the, the <laughs> throw yourself off the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> the properly chic suicide bridge. <laughs> it's the rage with all the gods. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you, Sean, so much for guesting on the show. Thank and you for having me. It was a wonderful time discussing these flicks with you. The Coens are some of my favorites, so I love always, you know, sort of throwing down the conversation arena. Happy to be here. Loved it. Hopefully see you guys some other time. Thanks. <laughs>